welcome to My Faculty Podcast at Walden University, created to provide further professional development and conversations relevant to faculty interests. This podcast is brought to you by the Office of Research and Doctoral Services. With me today are Leilani Gelstad and Sri Banerjee. Uh, why don't we start with you guys introducing yourself, Leilani? Hello, I'm Leilani Jalstad, and I serve as the chair of the Institutional Review Board at Walden University. That's the entity that does the ethics reviews for research studies before data collection. And Sri? Hi, I'm Dr. Sri Banerjee, core faculty for the College of Health Sciences at Walden University. Um, at Walden, I um, teach full-time um, co several courses in the public health department, and I also serve as chair committee member and university research reviewer for doctoral level students. Great. Over the next two podcasts, we're going to take a look at using social media in research. And today's topic is using social media for recruitment. Sri, what's your experience with this? Thanks, Lee, for that question. Um, recruitment, first of all, I would like to say is, is a very critical aspect of conducting a study. Uh, sometimes we get so involved in going through the trees and, and looking at the very minutia and detail, we lose sight of some of the um, bigger picture and, and some of the bigger themes that are um, important. Um, so what are some things that are happening um, in recruiting? Well, uh, you're trying to appeal to a larger audience why they should be uh, taking your questionnaire, taking your survey. And this is their first sneak peek into kind of understanding the reasons why this survey might be, um, you know, important. Um, so um, while it may be important to um, keep this uh, description brief, um, it's also crucial that you um, make sure that the recruitment message is such that it complies with all of the necessary elements needed um, to introduce into a research study. Um, and um, so, so, so brevity is, is of course key, but also um, making sure the literacy level um, is at the appropriate level as who will be taking your questionnaire um, and so typically when i was uh, doing some uh, grant research and recruitment in that um, the principle that i used and my collaborators used was about uh, you know anywhere from sixth to eighth grade level um, education so these are some of the initial guiding principles in recruitment Sri, do you know how someone might measure that as to what the grade level is of a particular piece of writing? That's a very good question, Lee. Um, there are actually certain um, health literacy and literacy assessment tools um, which can be uh, found uh, on, on the internet um, uh, pretty easily. Um, and so some of these literacy assessments are um, uh, basic literacy level um, to assessing literacy and assessing knowledge over 
specific diseases like diabetes. So there are a whole host and whole range of uh, literacy assessment tools which you can um, search for and find within the internet. Awesome. And if I could add something, yep. um, Microsoft Word has a built-in um, reading level uh, assessment. It's the Flesh Kincaid. I'm not sure if that's how you say it. Flesh Kincaid. Um, and it's part of uh, the settings where you can ask it um, Word to check your grammar. And if you check also give me readability statistics, it'll give you the approximate grade level at which your material is written. And that's very helpful. It's not perfect, but it's a guide and it can, um, you know, tell you, well, you've written everything at a 12th grade level, so you probably need to take it down. And some of the pragmatic suggestions for how you can write at a simpler grade level, um, some people respond really well if you say, you know, think about USA Today. It's a, a one of those publications that does tend to write at a more of a fifth to seventh grade reading level. Try to avoid using the passive voice. Also try to avoid compound sentences and words that are more than three syllables long. And I mean, that's pretty difficult to do, to be honest, but it's just, these are some of the things you could try to do if you're trying to keep materials at, um, like Sri was saying, maybe a sixth grade reading level or, or thereabouts. Very good. So Leilani, are there ethics issues that we should keep in mind with social media? You know, the beautiful thing about social media is that everyone who's participating in social media, media is doing so voluntarily. They're already there of their own free will. It's um, very different from collecting data in someone's workplace or in their school or in their doctor's office where there are more power relationships. Um, social media is, for better or worse, one of the great equalizers. And if somebody doesn't like what someone else is doing, they just sort of disengage and walk away. And so from a formal perspective, from a university perspective, we don't usually require documentation, like written permission, to recruit um, participants in social media. You just follow essentially the policies of you know, Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or LinkedIn. Sometimes we forget that LinkedIn is actually a form of social media. And um, if you follow those policies, and then if you're going to recruit within certain groups, um, like special interest groups that might be set up, say, within Facebook. They have interest groups where people can post, um, you know, rules that everyone agrees to when they enter the group. And in some cases, there might be rules against any type of solicitation. And believe it or not, even though you're not really trying to sell anyone anything, um, in some of um, these policies, research invitations would be considered solicitation. Um, but, you know, most of the time they're talking about don't try to sell us anything. So you just have to read the fine print. And if you're in doubt, just ask the administrator of the group, would you have any objection to me sharing this type of flyer? And typically um, the response is either no, there's no objection or well, if you do it, I'd like to be able to frame it this way or, you know, and, and so it either way, it's a good um, discussion to have. And some groups in some context, you can just freely post. And I would say the, the main ethical concern is ensuring that you as a user really understand what's being posted publicly versus what's being sent as direct messaging. Every once in a while, um, there, well, there are people out there who don't fully understand the difference between privately messaging someone in social media and publicly posting. 
And it tends to be people who don't use it that often, or maybe they just um, are pretty new to the setting and they don't understand that there's some things that you might comment on that everybody can see versus other, you know, uh, it, direct messaging is something only the, the people on the message can see. And so for the more sensitive studies, we would say, um, we would work individually with each researcher, the IRB would work with the researcher to ensure that um, if there are any elements, let's say the topic of the study is stigmatizing, like if it were about, um, you know, suicidal ideation or, you know, part of um, something for ex-offenders where there's might be a slightly stigmatizing element or a very stigmatizing element of the study that the recruitment could be handled, that you could still do snowball sampling, you could still do um, posting to groups, but then as people are volunteering that those types of communications be handled one-on-one -one, rather than having people say responding to a thread, um, you know, publicly to volunteer. In general, in research, um, recruiting people in a group setting can be, um, well, it's just not private. And so therefore some of the other issues with either power dynamics or um, just loss of, of privacy can come up. And so we would encourage researchers um, to just be very sensitive to about which things they're posting publicly, which things they might um, direct message about, and then also to be very clear when they're discussing um, with the partic participants how the re results of the study will eventually be shared. Um, usually it works best to share the results of the study in the same format in which the invitation was put out there. So for example, if you posted an invitation in a special interest group, maybe parents of children with autism, and you know, you collect your data and you analyze your data and you've got these great findings you want to share. Typically, um, if you recruited the adult, let's say it's a survey and it was an anonymous survey, then it would be ideal for you not to email, uh, I'm sorry, yeah, it would be ideal for you to not ask for email addresses of individual participants. If your goal is to provide anonymity, then you should just share the results in the same way that you initially posted the invitation. So maybe just posting the results to the entire group and, um, you know, it would presumably be seen by the is essentially the same um, set of people who saw the invitation. And that's a little different compared to a situation where if you were conducting a study that's not anonymous and you might ask them for their email address, or you might say, I'm going to message you the results later that, you know, I, you're, I'm, I know who you are essentially, and I'm, I'm going to follow up with you. Um, those are, are both acceptable paths, either the anonymous route or the I know who you are and I'm going to be following up with you specifically later, but then they have different considerations, you know, considering the um, the risk level of study and the privacy of the issues, you know, related to the data collection. And then certainly you don't want to somehow accidentally, you know, you don't want to post the results and then tag the people who were the participants or something like that. So it, I think any, any researcher considering um, using social media for recruitment and for results uh, dissemination needs to make sure they really understand the platform very well. And um, I don't recommend that novice users of these platforms use them for recruitment. Have you had any experience with like people buying ads on Facebook to recruit people? 
I think we've had a few. It's a little more common if, if a researcher is going to spend money, and it's usually not an insignificant amount of money. Um, it's a little more common for a researcher to use one of the services that connects researchers, you know, academic researchers and marketing researchers with people who are willing to take surveys. And there are quite a few of those services out there. So I hesitate to name one or another because they, they change and they seem to evolve a lot. But we um, certainly have encountered, well, one common one is SurveyMonkey. People, I think a lot of people are aware that SurveyMonkey is a platform that you can use to host your online survey, but they also have a service by which you can essentially buy participants. You can ask SurveyMonkey, okay, can you find me, um, you know, 100 parents of children with autism? And they can do that because they have panels of people who've already volunteered essentially to be part of SurveyMonkey's system um, for distributing surveys. And most of the time they're either um, paid directly for each survey they take or uh, they get a donation to a charity of their choice for every survey they take. And um, there are panelists all over the world and you know, whatever your inclusion criteria are, they often will just say, okay, here's the price for that set of criteria. And the more difficult it is to meet your criteria, the higher the price is. I think I encountered one student who was going to be asked to pay something along the lines of $50 per survey response oh, because wow. the criteria were so very specific. Um, they, the participants had to be from an, another particular country with a, in a very narrow age bracket with a certain small range of experiences. It's much more common for the cost per survey to be something like 50 cents to $2 per survey. That's definitely more the normal range that we've been seeing. I think this, we've, I don't want to go down a rabbit hole with this. I think this is a topic for a whole nother uh, podcast. But do either of you have recommendations for how to best do an ad that somebody might want to post on social media? Well, um, uh, Lee, I, I actually um, also, uh, before, before um, you know, talking about some of the recommendations, um, I, I wanted to revisit uh, some of the interesting uh, aspects that uh, Leilani was uh, describing. Um, just, just quickly, um, you know, the, the literacy portion of it um, and, and talking about um, the Fleisch Kincaid um, reading level, that is a very, very good at, uh, practical um, tool. Um, again, a part of Word. Um, I also wanted to introduce another, um, you know, a part of the National Institute of Health. Um, they have, when doing health literacy um, sort of assessments, um, the Office of Communications and Public Liaison, um, they have a, a sort of clear communication initiative. So um, it's really important and interesting um, area to, to assess for literacy. Um, the other uh, portion of the uh, differentiating between, you know, direct messaging, private messaging versus publicly posting. Uh, I personally encountered that um, in the social change grant uh, that I um, was conducting um, over 2021 uh, regarding, you know, looking for associations between COVID-19 and um, looking for anxiety. Um, and so we, we had a, uh, we had to go through a recruitment process and, um, um, all of that. And one thing that struck me and, and my collaborators by surprise was the number of um, public messages that people were posting 
that were more geared towards private sentiment and opinion. Um, and as something as, as sensitive as COVID-19, um, you know, there are uh, there were varied opinions, um, including ones that questioned the veracity of, of, of the very pandemic. Um, and, and so it, it was important now that we know this type of thing can occur, you know, it's important for researchers to prepare for um, things. So um, just in, I mean, in summary, I, I think thinking about all of the things, I mean, um, brevity, of course, you know, readability, um, all of these things um, are important. Um, you know, th th those can't be um, emphasized enough. Um, but but in addition, having something where um, you know you can provide them provide respondents with results, right? A, a, a feature where you can do that. Um, I, I think follow up, you know, throughout this process is extremely important. And to understand that recruitment is just it's it's not just one thing, but it's part of a whole process um, of research. And I would also add that um, sometimes as a researcher, you do just need to take a huge step back and maybe ask some friends and family who are not in grad school to look at your invitation and just kind of talk you through what their impressions are. What would what would they think if they saw this as they were scrolling through social media or, um, you know, what would they think if they if this landed in their inbox? Um, if, if some researchers do choose to inbox directly inbox people, like especially with LinkedIn, you might inbox people who meet certain criteria. And um, I think that does a lot, but some of the types of feedback they, that lay people might have for you are, oh, too many words, <laughs> too many words. For example, you definitely won't include citations in a research invitation, though that's the way we scholars speak to one another. It's very distracting and busy looking for people who are not in grad school or working in academia. Um, no citations, I would recommend, um, it's not required, but I would recommend that you use bullets instead of completing sentences and paragraphs. It's just easier for someone to skim. Um, and, and, and like Sri said, to keep it very brief and to the point, always knowing that if they do click on the survey, they're going to see an extensive consent form. They're going to see more information. And really your initial invitation is just to make them aware of the study. And, you know, so they can assess, hmm, is this a fit for me? Is this something I would be interested in? And um, another thing, I would say is kind of in that middle ground in between somewhere between the invitation and the consent process. If you if you suspect that your population is not that familiar with academic research and let's say you're doing interviews and if you just say, you know, I'm doing interviews of people about COVID, a lot of people might assume you're a journalist or assume you're a documentarian unless you specify that you're a researcher. That's, so that, that's one of those real basic things that sometimes people don't think to say, I'm a researcher, and they just say, I'm looking for people to interview. And, and you know, the people seeing it think, oh, this is probably for TV or some, <laughs> um, you know, documentary being made. And um, I mean, there's nothing wrong if people have a little confusion, you can help clear that up. But what's really, I think, going to make a big difference and has an ethical dynamic to it is that when people are interviewed in journalism and for documentaries, often their identity is attached to their their stories and their 
you know, their interview. And to the extent of, you know, a lot of times when we see news interviews, the person's name is written right underneath, uh, you know, on the screen or um, their, their position maybe of where they work. And so what's very different about social science research and is very surprising to many people who aren't familiar with academic research is when you tell them, I'm keeping your identity confidential and I actually will not be saying your name. I am not really in a position to publicly thank you for your contribution to this research. And here's why, you know, we're looking for um, to look for, you know, say themes in people with similar experiences. And this is not, a you know, about a one person story. And I think that um, it, it, it's tricky. I, I think that you can do this fairly concisely when you're in your invitation by just saying, you know, the word, the phrase confidential interview, that often conveys that, okay, this is confidential. So that means not everything's going to be out in the open. And then later on, when you get to explaining it to them a bit more, you could say more. And if they seem to not get it, why, why don't you want to use my name? Or why don't you, you know, want to use, you know, video record me and, and have my face be attached? And then you could just say, well, here's in social science research, we often do it this other way. That's a little different. And so, um, Often, you know, the IRB will give feedback on these types of things when you submit your flyer and certainly your committee um, can give valuable feedback. But don't forget that your family and friends who are not involved in grad school at all can give really helpful feedback from a layperson perspective. Awesome. Anyone have anything else they think we should tell faculty? All right. Well, thank you guys so much for joining me today. I know this is going to be something that students and faculty are really going to be able to use. So thank you. Of course. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today for Research Talk. Our music is by audionautics.com. And I'm Dr. Lee Statlander. Today's podcast was sponsored by Walden University's Office of Research and Doctoral Services.